So today, we are, as I uh, spoiled in my prayer, continuing the series on the Beatitudes. We're doing the sixth Beatitude today, which is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And we've been walking through this series on the Beatitudes uh, for several weeks now, and you'll probably have noticed we spent a lot of time in our sermons referring back to what we've previously said, to the ground that we've already covered. And, uh, and there's good reason for this. Actually, when we initially decided to do the Beatitudes, before I'd, I'd had a chance to really dig into them, I would say I very much, when I thought about these statements, I thought of them as sort of generally disconnected ideas, just sort of eight tips on how to live a good Christian life. But as the series began and as we have progressed, and as we have put all this stuff together, and as I've had a chance to uh, dig in uh, to these verses a little deeper than I have in the past, this structure has begun to emerge, and it's this ladder uh, that we keep referencing through this series. These Beatitudes, these were the first words out of Jesus' mouth to the public. These were his first words in teaching. These blessing statements, in, in many ways, as far as we can see in the biblical narrative, began his teaching ministry. Jesus had 30 years to get ready for this first sermon. He had a lot of time to think about how he was going to start things off, and there is a lot of intention and depth behind these words. These are not isolated, off-the-cuff statements. This wasn't like some party game where someone says, quick, name eight random things that apply to the kingdom of God. There is purpose here in the way that these are laid out. There is a progression here. And so in order to fully appreciate where we are uh, in the journey, it's important to remind ourselves where we've been, where we've been coming from as we've walked through this series and as we've walked up this ladder. And as we have progressed, I think it's fair to say that each step has gotten more and more difficult. When I spoke about the first beatitude, one of the things that really struck me about it uh, one of the things that I talked about was the fact that anybody can do it. It doesn't take a theologian or a saint to be poor in spirit. Anybody can immediately achieve that first step. And in fact, the worse you are, in some ways, the easier it is to achieve it. That's maybe part of the reason why Jesus talks about it being difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's tough to feel how poor in spirit you are when all your needs are being met, when life is going well, then it's easy to convince yourself that you're probably pretty rich in spirit. But all of us are broken, and all of us have fallen short of God's glory, and in reality, we are all poor in spirit. And we can all step on that first rung. And it's pretty easy to mourn, too. It's easy to be broken about what isn't going right in the world. And when faced with eternity and with God, it's pretty easy to be meek. It's not easy to do all of these things all of the time, but generally, these things feel achievable. It's a little tougher as we continue up to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to desperately desire to be righteous. That's getting a bit trickier, but note that it doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who desire righteousness. And so to me, that still feels 
attainable. Uh, Darren spoke last week about the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And it's getting tougher now, isn't it? To let go of the ways that we've been hurt by other people, to ignore our inner sense of justice, to release people from their debts to us, that's, that's tough. And today, well, I've got some bad news for you. I look at this beatitude and it, it just seems impossible. All around. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in action, feels attainable, maybe, sometimes. That's possibly a rung that I could hit. When I'm faced with a situation where I know what the right choice is, and I know that I don't really want to do what is right, I can at least imagine sort of pushing through my grumpiness and doing the right thing. Especially when I realize that my reputation is on the line, when my actions might be viewed by other people. Uh, when I'm driving down the highway and I've got an empty cup or a burger wrapper or some other kind of garbage sitting on the floor or the seat next to me, in my heart, there is nothing I want to do more than just roll down the window and toss it into the ditch. This is a moment of raw honesty between you and me, and I appreciate if you don't tell other people about this. I know it's not a good look. It would be so easy to do, but I don't do it. And do you know what stops me? It's not inner purity that stops me. It's a fear within me that there might be another car driving somewhere that I can't see, or there might somehow be someone hiding in the bushes that might notice that I do this thing, that I would become one of those people. Because if I see someone else do it, Another vehicle ahead of me, a righteous anger boils up inside of me. Can you guys picture me with a righteous anger? It looks like this. Huh. Because it's a pretty scummy thing to do. Although if I look deep into my heart, I don't appear to care that much about the environment at all. I certainly desperately want to be seen as somebody who cares about the environment, who respects the environment not to toss my garbage out the window. Uh, so I wish that God had just said, blessed are the pure in action. Because then at least in some cases, in some contexts, I would make the cut. But Jesus doesn't make it that easy for us. When Jesus talks about purity, it is totally clear that he is talking about an internal thing. Not actions, but the heart itself. Blessed are the pure in heart. And we see this echoed over and over again in his teaching. If you want to understand how Jesus thinks about purity, take a look at how he deals with the opposite. Take a look at how he attacks hypocrisy. Later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 23, here's just some of the things he says. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish. But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Purity of heart is essential to Jesus. Who cares about actions, Jesus says, if your heart 
doesn't line up. And so this ladder is getting tough to climb. In fact, I would say at this point, it's impossible. More than that, when I look at this phrase, both sides of this equation actually feel impossible. Not only is purity of heart impossible, when we look at the Bible, we see that seeing God entering into the presence of the holiest of holies, the purest of pure, seems totally impossible too. Moses, who was certainly a pretty pure guy, a hero of Israel, a savior figure for them in a lot of ways, he desperately longed to see God. I talked a little bit about him when we spoke about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Moses longed to be in God's presence. And when he is talking with God, he says, show me your glory. And God makes him a deal. He says, here, come stand on this rock. And when I get close, I will hide you behind the rock and I will cover you up with my hand and I will pass by, and once I am past you, I will remove my hand so that you can see my back as I continue on. But in Exodus 33, chapter 33, verse 20, he says, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And just that exposure, just seeing the back of God from behind a rock after he has passed by, covered Moses with a radiance so bright that he had to wear a veil over his face whenever he spoke with other Israelites. The fading reflection off of Moses' face, of the afterglow of God that he was allowed to experience, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of God's presence was too much for the people around him to be exposed to. And Isaiah experiences a vision where he is transported into God's throne room, directly into the presence of God, and, and that sounds wonderful on the face of it, but Isaiah is terrified. He wants to get out. He shouts, Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You could just as accurately say, I am a man of an impure heart, and I live among impure hearts, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah understood this spelled certain death. He was doomed. Sometimes I think we have gotten a little bit too glib or too casual about this concept of being in God's presence. Sometimes we start to think of God as a, a cool friend, as a, as a buddy that we can just drop in on any time. And while it is true that Jesus and other writers in the Bible use very intimate words in terms of their relationship with God, and while it is true that God is a God of comfort and mercy and love, and relationship, we should never underestimate the holiness of God either. The disciple John was closer to Jesus than just about any other living person. He is referred to as the disciple Jesus loved. He was friends with God. But when you read Revelation, you see the reverence and awe and wonder and smallness that was underneath that friendship that attitude that John approaches God with. And you recognize the deep, deep respect that John had. This wasn't just a casual, buddy-buddy relationship. And we need to be careful of a culture that exists in Christianity of making God small and cuddly and fun. Those people who knew God best, Moses and Isaiah, 
understood that seeing all of God's holiness, seeing him clearly, ought to spell death for us. In the throne room of God, in Isaiah's vision, even the seraphim, angels who are perfect, who have never sinned, who are as pure as you and I could ever imagine, even they cover themselves before God. They cover their face and their feet before the Lord. If these perfect beings, who spend all day eternally in worship, sinless, blameless, and faultless, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. If they cannot even stand and view the Lord God without covering their faces, what chance do we have? And the listeners at the time of this sermon, those on the side of the hill listening to Jesus speak, would have understood this. The Bible they were reading, the Bible Jesus read, the Old Testament, is very clear about the impossibility of both of these things. And so the question is, is Jesus holding this out in mockery? As some unattainable thing? If only you could be pure in heart, you would see God. But you can't ever be truly pure in heart, and so you won't. We have commented before in this series, both Darren and I, that the standards that are being held out here are impossible. They're unattainable. No human can be this pure on their own. No man can climb this ladder on their own. But Jesus, in saying these words, wasn't mocking. He wasn't teasing. He was holding out his hands, saying, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because I am making a way for you. Your hearts are dirty, but I am here to clean you. We can't do it on our own. We know that. We figured that out on the first step. We're broken. But Jesus is saying, like God said to Isaiah, I am about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus knows that purity is out of our reach. And so when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, he isn't giving us a task to complete. He is offering us a gift from God that we are invited to accept. 1 John 1, verses 8 to 10 say, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. When we recognize that we are broken and unworthy, Jesus steps down and it is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As the author of Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And today I want to look at the blessings of a pure heart. And the word pure here can be translated in a few different ways that had a lot of meaning, a lot of connotation behind it. And the two that I want to focus on today are these. First, purity as used here can refer to something that uh, talks about unity 
or singular focus. And second, purity can speak about cleanliness. So in the time that I have with you today, I want to look at these two aspects. Purity as shown through the idea of unity or oneness. And purity as shown through cleanliness. Now, when I talk about purity as unity, this is a personal thing I'm talking about. This isn't necessarily about unity with other people. Jesus has a lot to say about unity with other people. But this specific unity is a unity within yourself. It's a singular focus. Soren Kierkegaard, uh, the famous Danish philosopher, wrote a book on this beatitude. And the subject, yeah, the subject was this beatitude, and the title of the book was called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. The opposite of a unified heart is a divided heart. One of the destructive characters in the Pilgrim's Progress in John Bunyan's book was called Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways believes that it's fine to be a Christian when it's convenient and to be worldly when that seems more convenient. And if you want to be convicted on the issue of a divided heart, on the issue of being a Mr. Facing Both Ways or a Mrs. Facing Both Ways, give the book of James a read-through. He opens the book criticizing those who have doubts, who are like a wave of the sea blown and tossed in the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And later he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James understood that the antidote to double-mindedness was a pure heart, was a single heart, focused on all that is good. Elijah calls out Israel for their hypocrisy and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Purity of heart is to will one thing is to focus in one direction. Purity of heart is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Purity of heart, singleness of heart is the focus that Paul speaks of in Philippians when he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, heavenward in Christ Jesus. Absolute, total, unwavering, singular focus. He hasn't gotten there yet, but he is pure in his direction. But one thing he does. Sometimes we can start to overthink religion or our relationship with God. We can start to look for hidden shortcuts or special recipes or additional rules or regulations and we can get into a place where we're spinning our wheels going, what does God want from me? 
How can I get closer to him? Looking for the magic thing. And it reminds me of a time that I went to an escape room with some friends. How many of you have been to or are fairly familiar with the concept of an escape room? An escape room is basically, it's an entire room that's a puzzle. There's hidden clues and secret things and different stuff for you to solve. And as you do this, different parts of the room get unlocked and you're trying to get out within under an hour. You have one hour to sort of decipher all these clues and escape. And I was in a room and it was a pirate-themed room and there were people sitting here in church today who were in that room with me. And we had opened up a locked box and inside of that box there were a bunch of limes, lime wedges, sitting on a plate, and a piece of paper that I don't remember exactly what it said, but it basically said, you're a pirate, and you don't want to get scurvy, so you better eat the limes. And we looked at that paper and said, there's no way it can be that simple. And so we started looking around the room. Was there a sensor that we could squeeze lime juice onto? Was there a scale that we needed to use the limes with? Was there a puzzle with like a lime-shaped hole somewhere that we could use these limes to solve the puzzle? And we wasted a huge amount of time trying to figure out what we were supposed to do with these dumb limes, and that righteous anger of mine was flaring up again, and I was almost ready to start flipping tables, and our clock was ticking, and time was running out, and finally the game host, the employee at this escape room, got tired of watching us flounder around and said, just do what the paper says. Just eat the limes. And so we did. And once we had the limes in our mouths, a door in the room magically popped open, and we were on our way to the next phase of the puzzle. <laughs> Did you sense a little bit of PTSD coming back as I was telling that story? That's a... Whew. The gospel is a simple message. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When we live a double-minded distracted, hypocritical life, it becomes difficult to believe it could ever be so simple. There must be something more. But Jesus says, no. Simply focus on me. Let your heart be pure and united in its pursuit of me, and you will see God. The second blessing that Jesus has for us, the second gift of purity, is that of cleansing. Like the hymn says, would you be whiter, much whiter than snow, there's power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There's wonderful power in the blood. Jesus' death and resurrection, his sacrifice, has made a way for us to be pure. It justifies us. Justification is a legal term. It means the charges against us have been dropped, have been paid for. The slate is clean. It's an incredible thing that at the end of our lives as Christians, when Jesus comes up to us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant, we often talk about that as being the result of mercy. And it is a result of mercy. But in fact, it is also an act of justice. Does that sound weird? It is just that we will be with God for eternity because Jesus has paid the price. Only an unjust God would ask us to pay for a penalty that has already been served. In Jesus' death, we have been justified. The scales have been reset. Our penalties have been paid. Isn't that amazing? 
Only when we have climbed this ladder through poverty of spirit and through mourning and through humility can we truly understand the weight that has been lifted off our, soul, our shoulders. One author puts it beautifully. He says, The great central doctrine of atonement can never be fully appreciated until a man's heart is rectified. You have probably often heard such remarks as these. I don't see why there should be any recompense made to God for sin. Why could he not just forgive all transgressions at once and have done with it? What need is there of a substitutionary sacrifice? What need is there for Jesus? Ah, sir, if you had ever felt the weight of sin upon your conscience... If you had ever learned to loathe the very thought of evil, if you had ever been brokenhearted because you had been so terribly defiled by sin, you would feel that the atonement was not only required by God, but that it was also required by your own sense of justice. And instead of rebelling against the doctrine of sacrifice, you would open your heart to it and cry, that is precisely what I need. Through Christ's death, we have been justified and we have been forgiven. We have been brought close to God. Those are one-time things. They were accomplished in the moment that Jesus died on that cross. And all we have to do is accept it. But there's more. In John 1 verse 9, I read these verses earlier. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John makes a distinction between being just and forgiving and cleansing. And upon our confession of sins, we see that the character of God is just. We see that He forgives, but then we also see that He will cleanse us from unrighteousness. And this is the distinction that I see between these. Like I said, justification and forgiveness are one-time things. We have been justified. We have been forgiving. Cleansing, though, is a constant process, isn't it? If you get all the dishes done, or the laundry done, or the car washed, or the bed made, or even if you take a shower yourself, you have been cleaned. But if you take one shower, and then say to yourself, I am now clean, and I never have to shower again, that's a problem. If you do one load of dishes and say, I'm done, I never have to clean another dish, you're going to run into issues. It doesn't matter whether you drove through an automatic car wash or whether you spent hundreds of dollars having your car detailed. It doesn't matter whether your car is worth $100 or $100,000. It doesn't actually even matter if you drive it or not. Eventually, it's going to need to be washed again. Cleaning is a constant process. Cleaning is a transformative process that happens over and over again in our lives. Purity of heart is a constant transformative thing in our lives, and we can't do it on our own. The author in Proverbs says, Who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. And Jesus answers this in Matthew 19, verse 26, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And as we are cleaned, and as our hearts are made single, are made whole, we will see God. Charles Spurgeon, who I've mentioned often through this series, has this to say about seeing God. First, he says, we'll see God in nature. When his heart is clean, he will hear God's footfall everywhere in the garden of the earth in the cool of the day. 
you will hear God's voice in the tempest, sounding in peal on peal from the tops of mountains. He will behold the Lord walking on the great and mighty waters, or see him in every leaf that trembles in the breeze. Once get the heart right, and then God can be seen everywhere. To an impure heart, God cannot be seen anywhere, but to a pure heart, God is to be seen everywhere, in the deepest caverns of the sea, in the lonely desert, in every star that gems the brow of midnight. Second, we will see God in the Bible. Spurgeon says, impure minds cannot see any trace of God in them, referring to the scriptures. They see reasons for doubting whether Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. They doubt the canonicity of the gospel according to John. And that is about all they ever see in the Bible. But pure in heart, see God on every page of this blessed book. As they read it devoutly and prayerfully, they bless the Lord that he is so pleased to graciously reveal himself to them by his spirit and that he has given them the opportunity and the desire to enjoy the revelation of his holy will. And third, we will see God in the church. The impure in heart cannot see God in the church at all. To them, the church of God is nothing but a conglomeration of divided sects. And looking upon these sects, they can see nothing but faults and failures and imperfections. It should always be remembered that every man sees that which is according to his own nature. When the vulture soars in the sky, he sees the carrion wherever it may be. And when the dove on the silver wings mounts up to the sky, she sees the clean winnowed corn wherever it may be. The lion sees his prey in the forest, and the lamb sees its food in the grassy meadow. Unclean hearts see little or nothing of good among God's people, but the pure in heart see God in his church and rejoice to meet him there. So, let us seek after God with single-mindedness let us invite him to clean our hearts. And as we do these things, we are blessed because we will see God. Amen.